Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com and on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis in the life sciences industry to help bring new therapies to patients faster. I'm very excited to welcome Aoife Brennan, CEO of Synlogic. Thanks so much for joining us today, Aoife. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Wonderful. So to kick us off, Aoife, we'd love to you know, hear a bit about your background, the arc of your career, and how you got to where you are today. Yes, I'm happy. So I'm sure your listeners can hear the Irish lilt in, in my <laughs> accent. Um, I'm originally from Ireland. I trained as an endocrinologist in Ireland. And at the end of my clinical training, decided it would be fun to get some experience in the U.S. So moved to the U.S. almost 17 years ago now, initially to work in academic medicine and then was lured to the dark side, so to speak, by a really interesting opportunity in in biotech. And from the first three months working in a small private early phase biotech company, I was completely hooked. I knew that I'd found something that I wanted to do for the rest of my career. I assumed that would be in drug development, you know, that I would stay kind of as an R&D person. I had great experience, great training, an opportunity to work with a lot of people I admire who really took time to mentor and coach me and successes and failures along the way. As with all careers, it's been an amazing journey. I, I haven't regretted for one moment making that leap of faith. At the time, I thought I was, you know, leaving behind the job I'd been trained for. But actually, now I see that I was moving towards something much more fulfilling and exciting for me, just based on on my personality type and what I enjoy doing. It's been a really fun ride. I uh, worked at that small biotech for three years, then moved to Biogen, had a wonderful run there, learned a tremendous amount. It was through a really rapid period of growth for Biogen. So it was just seeing and, and having a front row seat for all of that was just really amazing opportunity. And then, you know, decided to jump and was attracted to Synlogic based on kind of a very short introduction to the company and the technology. At the time, the company was a couple of years old, was kind of still in that spin out phase. I was their first development employee. Up to that point, it was a lot of really smart scientists and patent attorneys and patent agents you know, just filing like crazy and doing lots of interesting experiments. And my job was initially chief medical officer, trying to work out how we could take this really interesting science and interesting platform and start to learn clinically and start to think about translational questions. A couple of years into that role, I became CEO and I've been CEO for three and a half years now and continue to learn every day and to really enjoy what I'm doing and, and what we're doing here at the company. Great. And as you reflect on your time at Biogen, and this is for the folks, let's say, that are currently working in either big pharma or at large biotech companies, what are some learnings from that experience that have carried over to running Synlogic now? Well, I think the first thing is just the amazing network that I have. You know, I think colleagues who come from outside of Boston often bemoan the fact that it can be a hard ecosystem to break into. But once you've been kind of in the foxhole with colleagues through, you know, difficult situations, challenging situations, you know, you may not have spoken to them for five years, but they really are only a phone call away. And it's just been amazing to have this, you know, support network, both for kind of brainstorming 
and also just, you know, congratulating each other. I'll follow some people I worked with and see them, you know, do well in their careers or projects, you know, get financing or, or whatever else. And that's just been, I think, probably the biggest benefit from the time I spent at Bijan. That's really been great. You know, I think other than that, being at a company where there's commercial products, where there's a lot of people who have tremendous experience where you can really learn from was fantastic. At the time when I joined Biogen, the culture was very much kind of a research and development culture. Even though they had maybe two or three products approved at that point in time, it still felt very much like a research-led company where the center of gravity was very much a development phase. There were amazing people that I got to learn from. And because I joined right after the Tech Federa phase three trial had read out. So there was just an amazingly vibrant culture. Great things were happening. There was far more opportunity than there were people to do the work. So it felt for four or five years, every six months, just as I was getting my head above water in terms of my current role, I was being given additional responsibilities. And I think I really learned to kind of push the envelope in terms of what I could do as a drug developer, as a kind of a career, because there was just this tremendous wealth of opportunity and growth potential. And you really weren't limited. You know, there were lots of great female role models. I think at the time it was an organization that really, truly valued diversity. I was promoted to VP while I was on maternity leave two weeks after giving birth to my son. I got a call from Doug Williams, who was head of R&D at the time. And, you know, that's, I think, a testament to the kind of culture that existed at the time that I was working there. So it was just a great place for me to build a career and to learn and a lot about drug development in, in a more mature organization where there was already structure, there was already, you know, a commercial team, a medical affairs team. So you really got to understand what good looks like at the end of the process. It wasn't just about getting things into the clinic. It was really about thinking through, okay, what's this going to look like in a label? You know, how are we going to think about, you know, positioning this product when it comes to market? How is it going to fit into the current therapeutic approach for this disease? And I think that was amazing training because, you know, while we're earlier in development at Synlogic, having seen kind of what good looks like at the end of that pathway, I think is, is very, very helpful from a career perspective. Great. And so, you know, taking that one step further, as you went from a pure play R&D role when you were CMO to then leading the company as CEO, how did you prepare for that role? And what were some of the biggest surprises or adjustments in even your own mental model in terms of how you operate that you now realize? Well, number one, I wasn't preparing for the role at all. I actually thought at the time that CMO was the best job in the world. You know, I had a seat at the table in terms of how strategic decisions were being made. I, I didn't necessarily have the accountability of losing sleep at night over some of those decisions, but I got to be close enough to how the sausage is made, so to speak, on the business side. I've always been curious about kind of business and financial element of drug development. So, you know, I had that ringside seat, but was still able to, you know, be close to the data, really, you know, go sit down, think about a development challenge or think of pour over a preclinical data package with the scientists. So I felt that was, you know, a great place for me and certainly wasn't looking or thinking about preparing for a CEO role when the opportunity came up. But I will say in, in retrospect, I've loved it. I, I've learned so much. I think it is possible to continue to stay close to the data and to, you know, fulfill my passion for drug development as well as kind of take on a more invisible external role as CEO. 
And I think one of the things that has maybe enabled me to take on that role is just I have an innate curiosity. You know, it's it's not just for science. If somebody uses a term in a meeting, I'm I'm kind of curious. You know, the first time someone told me my project was being discontinued because it had a negative ENPV, I didn't just go home and say, okay. <laughs> you know, I was like, I want to I want to know what this means. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of I'm like a pain in the butt to everybody, kind of going, what's how do you try? I don't I don't like this assumption. I don't agree with this probability of success. So. You know, I kind of always had that curiosity and unwillingness to just accept as given something I didn't understand. And I think in retrospect, it helped me because when I came to be CEO, I, I wasn't afraid of looking stupid. I wasn't afraid of asking the question about, hold on, I don't understand this terminology or I don't understand this recommendation or this advice. And I think it helped make that transition from kind of a functional leadership role that I loved to taking on additional responsibilities. Wonderful. So with that great background, let's talk a little bit about synthetic biology before we get into the important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at SynLogic. So what is synthetic biology and what are the opportunities and challenges that it presents from your perspective? Yeah. So synthetic biology at its core is the application of engineering principles to biology. And it's based on the fact that we're now able to read and print DNA with relative ease. And that allows us to really think about creating cells and organisms where you can control the specific functionality of those cells and organisms. So when I was at Biogen and I heard about you know, Synlogic and what Synlogic was doing, I had this thought of like, oh, I haven't heard of anybody applying genetic engineering to probiotic bacteria. A lot of companies at the time were doing mammalian gene therapy or, you know, CRISPR was just starting to kind of get off the ground. And my assessment was, well, you know, it should work. All of the components are there. We understand a little bit about bacteria's therapeutics. We understand about genetic engineering. Prokaryotic cells are more basic than mammalian cells. So, you know, there's something here that I'd love to try. And it was complete white space. No one had ever really done it before. The regulatory path was undefined. So that was a super attractive kind of proposition for me coming in, as well as the opportunity to really think about how we could impact disease in, in a fundamentally new way. I think every time you get to develop a new therapeutic modality, you get to look again at biology of diseases and how you can think about treating diseases and addressing unmet needs. And that's super motivating as a drug developer. So that's kind of the platform and how we think. So we take probiotic bacteria. Usually we look for a chassis organism that has a good history of safe use in humans. So in the case of Synlogic, we use a bacterial strain called E. coli Nissel. It's taken by hundreds of thousands of patients as a probiotic supplement. It's pretty well understood. There's a lot of exposure data that we can kind of build on. And then depending on the specific disease that we want to treat, we engineer the E. coli nissel genome to perform whatever function is missing or damaged due to a disease. And that gives us an amazingly plastic kind of precision engineering platform that we can think about pursuing multiple different targets and disease biologies with the components of this platform. It's very exciting. It's been fast paced. We've been able to move a number of programs forward into the clinic within a relatively short period of time. And that's always been you know, really fun as a drug developer to be generating clinical data, learning in the clinic, interacting with regulators, thinking about path forward for programs. It's a very fun thing to do. 
And let's talk a little bit about where you are now from a pipeline perspective. Yeah, so we're at a really exciting stage. We announced last September some very nice data from our PKU program. It's one of our first programs in the clinic. It's a program that's very near and dear to my heart and everyone at the company's heart. It's a disease that impacts kids. It's diagnosed as part of newborn screening. As a parent myself, you know, you can only imagine what parents and kids with this disease go through. And treatment options are really, really limited, despite the fact that all kids are diagnosed at birth. You know, for the vast majority of patients in the U.S. today, there's really no kind of suitable treatment options. So I think you're starting off with a big pull from a patient perspective, an unmet need. And then we designed this engineered strain of bacteria that essentially consumes phenylalanine in the GI tract. It produces a harmless metabolite called transynamic acid that we can then measure as a biomarker in blood and urine. So it has really nice tools translationally to think about answering questions around how is this, how well is the strain working? And then most importantly, last September, we announced interim data from a phase two study in patients with PKU, showing that we were able to engineer bacteria to consume fee. We gave it to PKU patients. It was chewing up fee in their GI tract. It was producing some of this specific biomarker that we could measure. It was preventing the fee that these patients were taking in their diet from being absorbed in the body, and it was lowering fasting fee levels in these patients to a clinically meaningful extent. So that really got us very excited seeing those data and understanding the unmet need and the real opportunity to impact patients with this rare metabolic disease. That was wonderful, both for the PKU program as well as for the platform, because I think it allowed us to think about, okay, we're realizing, you know, our design intent. Um, so it's it's all very well to, you know, design something with a certain kind of intent and you're constantly making assumptions, you're modeling, you know, how well this is going to work in patients. And then when you get that patient data and see, oh, wow, look, it's working like we predicted it was going to work based on our preclinical and our animal model data. I mean, you don't get too many days like that in drug developments. That was a really exciting data readout. And on the basis of those data, we made the commitment to move to phase three program. We still have a couple of questions to answer this year, but our goal as a company is to initiate first phase three. So we're working feverishly toward that goal, which is, is fun, and then have a number of other programs coming along behind that are very much built, you know, on the back of those PKU learnings that I think we'll also read out. So as well as our PKU program, we have two additional clinical programs reading out in in 2022. So really a pivotal year for us as a company. Yeah, sounds like a very exciting time and starting to, you know, bear the fruits of a lot of development work that I'm sure has gone into getting you all to this point. I'm curious, as you think about all the opportunities that synthetic biology presents, how you went about figuring out, you know, what is the first indication and what does that indication selection framework look like for you, given all of your experience now? So I think, you know, synthetic biology is a really broad field. I really didn't understand when I accepted the role at Synagic, I'm a drug developer. So what really motivated me was this opportunity to develop a new therapeutic modality and have multiple products coming out. But I really didn't have the breadth of exposure to all of the industries that where synthetic biology is poised to have a huge impact. I just see that accelerating in everything from ag to climate change to, you know, drug development. You know, we're this small little slice of Symbio, you know, thinking about application of Symbio to bacteria therapeutics. But there are really exciting companies pursuing synthetic biology from mammalian cells 
to help make you know CAR T better to lots of other you know industries and technologies that are using Symbio. So it's really really broad. But I think as we started to think about and every platform company faces this, right? Every technology company is like, where to start? And there's lots of companies that will sell you the kind of Excel spreadsheet of your target prioritization. And you're often looking for areas where there's a met need, where you've good technical probability of success, where the biology is well known and well understood so that you're not taking on a lot of biology risk in addition to the technology risk of your new platform. And so you're kind of looking at a number of aspects and then, you know, what are the indications that sit at the intersection of all of those? I think another important component of that for me is really understanding the disease and the applications where they're good biomarkers. Because the key is to learn early. And the more you can learn early, the more you can iterate, the more you can refine your approach. If you're not going to find out whether this product is working until you do, you know, a 100 patient phase two study that's probably going to cost you, you know, 30 to 40 million. That's a huge missed opportunity. So we were really looking for indications where we would know pretty quickly in healthy volunteers whether we were in the zone where we needed to be or not. And that's where the PKU program really hit the kind of intersection of a lot of those. In addition to having, you know, multiple biomarkers, we follow, you know, four or five biomarkers in the clinic. We can measure the same biomarkers in animal models, in vitro, in healthy volunteers and in patients. And that really gives us an amazing, rich data set that can help us make the best decisions about that program, but that can really inform what we need to do for the next program coming along in the pipeline. So I think PKU is relatively unique in that it kind of checks a lot of those boxes. But what the data PKU allows you to do is then to think about opening that aperture a little bit wider for programs that come along before, because suddenly you're taking some of the unknown unknowns and you're starting to put, you know, parameter estimates in some of those slots. And that allows you to start opening up things that maybe might have been a little bit risky or may not have a perfect biomarker where, you know, maybe instead of having those five biomarkers, now you only have two for the next product. But you can impute based upon your PKU experience and you can feel a little braver because you've had the benefit of all of the learnings from that first program. As you can tell, I'm a big biomarker fan. And I do think it's kind of the fourth component that often gets forgotten about as you're thinking about new platforms. It's like, what are you really going to learn that helps you make better decisions about the program that comes behind and that, you know, your third and fourth program should really have higher probability of success compared to your first program if you're doing it right. And I think that's a lot of that is on the back of kind of having a very rich and well thought out biomarker strategy. Great. And if it certainly seems like there's a lot going on at Synlogic and in a pandemic world, I'm sure that that presented certain challenges. What were some of the, perhaps the silver linings for you all, and perhaps more broadly that you're seeing for the industry as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, I think, you know, this time, whatever, two years ago, March 2020, I think was when we really realized, oh, wow, this is not just, you know, a blip that, that's going to go away. This kind of a big impact. Of course, you thought it would be all over in six months. <laughs> Here we are, you know, two Absolutely. years later. But, you know, that's the way life is. For us as a company, it's been amazing learnings. I continue to be in awe of like how resilient the team at Synlogic have been. You know, it's just been like, you know, I remember the 11th of March, we had our team meeting, our town hall. I'll never forget it. It Just like, we need to keep this show on the road. You know, 
everyone on the team just really pulled together to make sure we were balancing keeping everyone safe with keeping the projects moving forward. One of the first calls we got was from the patient advocacy organization, the PKU patient advocacy organization. You know, they realized more before anyone else that this was going to have a major impact. And the call from them was, what can we do to help you guys make sure that this important research continues? We'll do a survey. We'll get our members kind of thinking about how we can do trials in the era of a pandemic. You know, and just that coming together to really galvanize this kind of solving a problem and now trying to do it with this additional headwind was just amazing. You know, for the team, that definitely brought us closer as a team while we were more distant. Certainly the executive team and, and my colleagues that I worked closely with kind of went into crisis mode and started to have, you know, stand up meetings you know, very frequently to deal with kind of there seemed to be a new issue every day back in the early days of the pandemic. So that's been amazing. I think it's also taught us a lot about some of the ways we were working before that probably weren't that efficient. You know, the SEC wasn't accepting digital signatures until you know, at the beginning. We were still every quarter we'd go around collecting wetting signatures from everyone for all of our filings. You know, that's now all gone. Just thinking about, you know, tools that we can use, you know, better tools. We are very high users of technology in the company, sharing information seamlessly. So with anywhere you are on the planet, you can access the data and the information you need to do your job. Within a couple of clicks, I think it forced us to get better. You know, we always had kind of being a young technology focused company, we always had kind of super users, but there was still a big cohort of the company that were kind of hanging back a little bit. You know, they preferred the old fashioned, get everyone in a room together way to work and, and solve problems. I think it's kind of forced that cohort to move forward a couple of steps in embracing technology as, as a real enabler of the work. And then I'm hoping it's made a lot of our work practices more people-centric and, and friendly, particularly you know, a topic I feel very strongly about is, you know, women in STEM and being able to kind of give additional work-life balance and flexibility for people who need it because they have kids at home or because they have a parent they need to look after, you know, whatever it is. I think recognizing that to do an awesome job, you don't need to be tied to your desk, you know, nine to five, Monday to Friday. I think has been a, a big learning for a lot of us. And how has that informed your hiring practices? Is the team now fairly distributed, especially the new members? Yeah, so it really opened the door for us to hire people who are not Massachusetts based. And that happened just pure you know, during the pandemic. So I think there's multiple ways it has impacted hiring. I think some of them positive and some of them negative, frankly, you know, in terms of just how do you make sure people joining the company have a really great sense of who the company is and the culture at the company? So that's been a challenge that we continue to think a lot about. In terms of, you know, we now have remote, 100% remote employees, right, who've never been to the Synlogic office. And now that things are starting to open up a little bit more, we're starting to solve kind of the next challenge of like, how do we make sure that we balance flexibility with the true power of in-person collaboration, right? Because you can't really replace the energy and the dynamism of having people in a room around a whiteboard solving a difficult problem. You know, just you can try on Zoom, but you you just really can't get it to that level. So we're now experimenting with something that we call a hub and home model. So we're having hub weeks. Once a quarter, we get all of the team together in Cambridge for a week. We arrange you know, in-person meetings, 
strategic reviews, kickoffs of, of big projects. We give everyone the certainty of knowing when these hub weeks will be at the beginning of the year. So hopefully that makes it easier for them to arrange their personal lives around these kind of hub weeks. And they're an opportunity for celebration, for brainstorming, to get teams together in person. So that's something that we're trying to do as kind of a way to balance the distributed workforce, the flexibility that we offer employees with also the secret sauce of having people co-located in, in one place that I think is very, very difficult to replace, particularly for industries that rely on a lot of innovation and, and problem solving, you know, like we do. I think it's important to find that balance. So um, you can have me back next year and I'll tell you how it's going. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and, you know, somewhat adjacently related now, as the pace of innovation across the life sciences sector accelerates with perhaps the removal of some of these unnecessary constraints that we had pre-pandemic, what are some of the areas where you still think that there is work to be done? And what do you hope for that to be? Yeah, you know, I think I'm just in awe of the opportunity of all of the science that's emerging at like an amazingly rapid pace. I'm also in awe of, you know, the huge needs, be it, you know, climate, be it pandemic, be it, you know, diseases that still have no good treatment options. And, you know, the thing that challenges all of us, I think, in the industry is how do we make sure that we're bridging that gap, right? How do we make sure that we have the right tools in place, that we have the right ways of working, the right processes, that we're being really efficient at taking things through the development pipeline to really address patient needs? And how do we make sure that the incentive structures are set up such that, you know, well-meaning initiatives don't end up just killing incentive for some of this translational stuff? Because Doing studies is challenging, it's expensive, it's risky, it's becoming more expensive and more complex all the time. And it requires investors to put dollars at risk to kind of bridge that. They need to know that there's going to be a reward at the end of it. And so I just hope that there's some way we can balance and make sure that the biggest areas of unmet need are actually the ones that attract in, you know, appropriate investment so that we really make sure that we're addressing not just today's problems, but, you know, the problems of tomorrow as well, because the science is there. The technology is there. It's, you know, just the pace of development in, in research is really rapid, but, you know, without kind of the infrastructure, the ecosystem, and it really is an ecosystem to advance that science towards solving real problems for people. I think it'll just sit there, <laughs> interesting paper in science. It's never really going to help or impact people. So that I think is the challenge of our time. Couldn't agree more. And are there certain policy reforms that come to mind for you that are higher priority than others? I'm not a politician. I'm not a policy expert. <laughs> but occasionally yeah. I'll hear of you know, very well-intentioned initiatives that maybe fail to understand the underlying problem. And, you know, I think, you know, the thing that keeps me up at night is that, you know, we do more harm than good, <laughs> you know, that we don't really understand the problem and, and that, you know, policy positions are being put forth without a true diagnostic of the underlying problem. We end up damaging what is a really vibrant industry in our kind of attempt to do good. So I think that's what keeps me up at night. That's what worries me about the future. I'm hopeful that that won't happen. But I think it requires all of us, unfortunately, to get out there to educate the general public, to educate, you know, those in positions of power about you know, what drug development is all about, what it actually takes, and how companies work and how companies need investment dollars to do the next phase of development. So, um, you know, it's certainly taken me out of my shell. I've been more open 
discussing some of these topics. And, you know, I think others in the industry have as well. Great, Aoife. And to wrap up, given all that you've seen now across the life sciences sector and your own progression in your career, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? So there was one piece of advice I actually received early on in my career. And at the time, I didn't interpret it appropriately or I dismissed it. And it's something that kind of keeps living in my brain ever since, which is somebody told me, you know, Aoife, you have to be careful that you're always part of the solution. You know, you have to be part of the solution. Sometimes, you know, you can be part of the problem unintentionally. And that, I think, is just such a profound piece of advice. And I see it all of the time across, you know, many, many things that that I get involved in where I think people dig in and sometimes think they're doing a great job, but they're becoming part of the problem, not necessarily part of the solution. And I think no matter what it is, no matter what challenge you're faced with, taking a step back to really understand what's going on, what are the dynamics, what are the human emotions at play? <laughs> how can you make sure that you're not kind of inadvertently making a problem worse? You know, I see that play out all of the time. And I think it was a piece of advice I got early in my career. It took me some time to really appreciate what important advice that was. And occasionally I find myself becoming part of the problem and I have to check in with myself and say, hold on a second, Aoife, you're actually not moving towards the goal that you want to achieve here. Your behavior is moving you and moving this in the opposite direction. It might make you feel good at the time to vent or to put additional pressure on where additional pressure is actually not helping (laughs) because we all have a need to do something, right? That's just our innate, like we need to do something. But, you know, I remind myself of this, be part of the solution, make sure you're not part of the problem before you weigh in. So um, I think we, we all need to do that. So. It's great advice and and requires a tremendous amount of self-awareness to be developed along the way. Great. Well, Aoife, it was a pleasure having you on. Look forward to having you on again to learn about how the huddles have gone when you're bringing the team back in, or the hubs, I should say, have gone as you're bringing the team back in. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Ru. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.